Well, let's put into practice what we have just sung, being not just hearers and singers of God's word, but doers as well. So would you turn with me in your copy of God's word to the book of Exodus? We'll continue this morning making our way through this book as we come to chapter 15. We'll be considering chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, but for a bit of context, let's begin reading this morning uh, in verse 30 of chapter 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. The blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed into the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters." Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you've purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with the chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. 
Would you pray with me? God and Father, how greatly we need to see who you are. Not merely to see who you are according to our own mind's eye or our own perception or ideas of who you might be. But Lord, we need to see who you are as you are revealed in your word. Lord, we confess that far too often we think too little of you. Far too often we think you, your hand to be shortened, that it cannot save, to think that your wisdom or your perception of things is surely slighted or faulted. Father, we confess that how often our perception of you is just flat out wrong. And Lord, we also know that when we see you as you are and when we are reminded of your great power, wisdom, might, and grace, Lord, how much better we see ourselves and our circumstances. From the light of who you are and from the revelation of Scripture, we greatly need to perceive not only who you are, but the world that we live in and ourselves particularly. So, Father, we pray by the clarity of your word, the power that it is, and by your gracious hand, would you help us this morning to see who you are, that we might respond rightly and faithfully for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it was just over 500 years ago in the autumn of 1517 that a German monk by the name of Martin Luther kicked off a discussion that would become known as the Protestant Reformation. Luther was a pastor. He was a theologian, professor. Uh, He was a Bible translator, but he was also a hymn writer. But weaving together strong melodies and sound doctrine was not his only concern in hymnody. How the congregation sang was just as important to him. He understood that one of the evidences of a healthy church, a strong church, a faithful church, would be found in her singing. Again, not just what they would be singing, but how they sang. Because Luther understood that a faithful biblical church would be one in which every believer is participating, not just observing, not watching, but participating in every part of the service, including the singing. It's true that song, melody, music, it's woven into much of what it just means to be human. I think by God's design, as his image bearers, music plays an important role in just our humanity. But Christians, above all of humanity, have a particular responsibility and reason to sing. We are a singing people because God certainly created us to sing, but we are to sing because of what he has done. Of all the people on the earth, we know something of what this God has done. Now, I think this is where much of the reluctance to sing and misunderstanding about singing within the evangelical church has lost its way. In the past 50 years, the subject of what we ought to be singing, it's fluctuated. And with it, the clarity and the conviction of the particular songs that we've decided to write. I think the downfall and the weakness of much of modern worship music is that it tells me what I ought to feel. And when a song begins with me and my feelings... I 
often shrug my shoulders and put my hands in my pockets because sometimes I just don't feel that way. How am I supposed to sing this? But the timelessness and strength of great worship music sings of God and what he has done and what he's done for his people. We tell of his might. We sing of his grace. We gratefully sing of his power and of his love. We proclaim the excellencies of Christ as sound doctrine meets sweet melody, and the people of God unite their voices as they continue to sing. This is the sort of song, this is the sort of singing that I can take my feelings to or my shifting mood to, and I can instruct them there. I can revive that cold heart. I can realign them by ordering them according to the wisdom of God's word put to song. And is it any wonder then, as we consider Exodus 15, that those who've just experienced the salvation of God through, sal through his glory, through salvation and judgment, that they begin to sing? Long before Luther was composing great hymnody, Moses had a few hits. He had a few that were worth singing. And so as we read and as we consider Exodus 15, we are shown not only what we must sing, but why every Christian should love to sing of God's praises. What we're going to see this morning in Exodus 15 is that we are singing because it is the testimony of God's people, that we are singing the triumph over God's enemies, and that we are singing in the trustworthiness of his plans. The testimony of his people, the triumph over his enemies, and then the trustworthiness of his plans. Let's consider why our singing ought to be the testimony of God's people. Notice how the song begins and ends in the same way. The song begins in verse 1 and ends in verse 21, really with Miriam's refrain, with this song of God's glorious triumph, testifying of what God has done, delivering God's people, throwing the horse and rider into the sea. The song begins and ends with this firsthand testimony, because the very same people who feared moments before saying it would have been better for us to die in Egypt and be slaves, now see the dead bodies of the Egyptians, the power of the Lord, and they begin to sing of his triumph. But notice what this song is filled with. That it's filled with the accounts of what God has done, but it's far from just impersonal doctrinal clauses. The salvation that God brings here is personal. It's experiential. Look at the language of verse 2. The Lord is not a strength and a song, He's my strength. He's my song. Because he's become my salvation. The Lord is not a God. He's my God. And I will praise him as such and exalt him for being this. This is the sort of experience that it, it engages the mind, it engages the heart, and it confronts the very conscience, saying, I will do this. This is personal. And is it, it is experiential. 
And by experiential, I mean the sort of triune theology that stresses the salvation of sinners, that it comes by faith, and it must have this personal, experienced, spirit-wrought knowledge of Christ, and with it, a love for all that Christ teaches. Christ is not just a savior of sinners, in a general category sense. He's taken the rancid guilt of my sin upon himself, and he's cleansed me by his blood for me. Christ is not simply clothing sinners with his righteousness. He has clothed me in his righteousness. And so I stand in awe, yes, at this marvelous doctrine of God's sovereign grace, calling me, redeeming me, causing me to be born again and placing His Spirit within me. Friends, this is the great difference between a believer and an unbeliever. A Christian is not merely content to just attend church functions, gatherings. A Christian is not content to simply be around God's people. A Christian testifies personally and experientially of what God has done for them. Let me sing of my God, because He has become my salvation. So before we go any further, we we must ask, can you sing like this? Can you sing in this sort of way? That it's not just your parents' God, but it's your God. That it's not just the God of the people you've been friends with, but it's your God. Can you sing of what God has done for you? Christian, can you say, verse 4, can you say, the Lord is a man of war and he fights for me. All that stood against me, he's triumphed over. All that would do me harm, He has vanquished and done away with. He should be against me because of my sin, but he's taken up battle for me in his grace. That's what a Christian sings. John Gill, the Baptist pastor, said, A warrior, speaking of Christ, a warrior he is, well-versed in all the arts of war and abundantly qualified for it having consummate wisdom, strength, and courage, and thoroughly furnished and equipped for it, having the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the garment of vengeance, the cloak of zeal, a vesture dipped in blood, and with a sword girt on his thigh or drawn coming out of his mouth, with a bow and arrow going forth conquering and to conquer, he is the victorious one who has conquered sin, Satan, and the world and will subdue all others and make his people more than conquerors through him. He's not a common man of war or warrior. He is the captain of the Lord's hosts, the leader and commander of God's people. We sing to God as a personal testimony of our salvation. But this song also must include the fact that he has triumphed over our enemies. It's personal testimony, but it's also a song that he has triumphed over his enemies. As the song continues, we see that 
we sing to God because his salvation brings the defeat of all his and our enemies. The thematic emphasis there in verses 4 through 12 read through it, you notice that it revolves around this destruction of all that opposed Yahweh and his ways. Just look back. Notice some of the images and the descriptive language that fills this section. Verse 4, they were sunk into the Red Sea. Verses 5 through 7, they went down into the depths like a stone. They were shattered. They were overthrown. They were consumed by his fury. And then there's that image in verse 8. Moses sings that it was by the blast of his nostrils that the waves piled up like a wall. That is to say, the wind is his. He commands it. Just as you're able to breathe in through your nose and out, the Lord takes up the wind and uses it for whatever he chooses. By the mere breath of his nostrils, the might of Pharaoh's army is consumed. Chariots decked out in gold and bronze, valiant battle steeds going forth, spears and swords, just by the breath of his nostrils, they're done. And notice the repeated staccato of the enemy's willful rebellion there in verse 9. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Yes. The enemy might repeatedly say, I will. But this is just the futility of their raging because the enemy says of God, my hand will destroy them in verse 12. But Yahweh stretched out his right hand and the earth is swallowed up. I see your hand. Here's mine. And they were done. Friends, if we're not clear on a couple of categories here, the categories of God ruling in righteousness and people raging against him, if we're not clear on those categories, then much of Scripture will not make sense to us. God is the creator and rightful ruler over all his creation. He created men and women in his image for his good purposes. For his purposes. And so when we reject his good design and we turn away from his good purposes, which are to know him and to glorify him, we are raging against him. That's the definition of what that is. This means that every human conflict, whether it is around your dining table in your home or it is on the battlefield of some distant nation, has everything to do with our being at odds with this God and his purposes for us. We're raging against him. Is that not why Psalm 2 begins with this great panorama that helps us understand all of this? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Friends, the message of Scripture is unavoidable. God will triumph over his enemies. Because Psalm 2 continues in verse 5, as he laughs and holds them in derision, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on my holy hill. And the refrain of verse 11 back in Exodus 15 speaks of this same greatness, this same majesty, for our God is incomparable. Who's like him? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and wonder? That is the question of verse 11. Who is like our God? He's majestic in holiness. Do you have any sense of the grandeur of what that phrase means? To speak of his holiness is to speak of his otherliness, for no one is like him. He's incomparable. We try and use analogy so much in our language where we tell our kids, it's kind of like this. We cannot do that with God. Who is like him? There is no analogy, no created analogy that we can say, he's just like this. He is like himself. I am that I am. He's incomparable. He stands alone, high above creation in all eternality, purity, wisdom, and power. And in his transcendent rule, he's not only authoritative and in authority, he is morally perfect in his rule. All his ways are good and right. That means with all of his might and all of his power, there is not one millisecond in which he is not ruling in perfect goodness. He's majestic in holiness. And he's awesome in his glorious deeds and wonders. Meaning, he's not like the magicians in Pharaoh's court. He's not doing parlor tricks and cheap illusions. His wonders and his works are full of awe. They're full of glory. He causes the seas to split. And he causes his people to walk through, not just on muddy marshland of what you would expect, they walked through onto dry ground. They were preserved. And all of his enemies, they were consumed. Full of glory. Full of wonder. Who is like him? None other. There, there is none other. He stands high above the earth and he triumphs over all his enemies. That is a song worth singing. And what a great comfort this is to persecuted saints all over the world. What is it like to live in a place where professing Christ would mean financial loss? Or fear of beatings? Or arrest? And an arrest where you can appeal to no one, no amendment, no bill. No justice. Imprisonment. Torture. Imprisonment that's seen as good and right. 
How is it that Christians endure such suffering? I think in part only by singing often of his majestic holiness and his righteous power. Only by keeping our eyes fixed upon the king whom God has set upon his holy hill. Because this righteous king, do you know how Psalm 2 continues? This righteous king shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. What a great warning this is for any remaining hardened heart of unbelief or apathy today. Do you hear the warning? There's a king who sits upon a throne and he will dash into pieces all who will rage against him. Even the most resolute defiance that says, I will, will be overthrown by his strong hand. And don't think that this merely applies to the mighty kings of other nations that rage in geopolitical conflict. Because even the smallest act of defiance by the most obscure person is still raging against God. What that means is that from the smallest child who lies to their parent to the adult who covets a particular lifestyle or slanders their neighbor, every lack of conformity unto or transgression of God's law is sin. It's raging against the king. And therefore the plea of Scripture and and my plea this morning for everyone who can hear the sound of my voice is to heed the warning and in the psalmist language, kiss the son. Embrace the king. Bow before him now, confessing this unbelief, this rebellion, this apathy, this futile raging against him. Confess it for what it is as sin. His wrath is quickly kindled, the psalmist says, but how blessed are those who take refuge in him. This same king who rages in wrath also welcomes confessing repentant sinners and says, I'll be a refuge for you. I am a man of war. And instead of warring against you, I now fight for you because of grace, because of my great love for sinners. We sing because of the salvation that God brings, that it ensures the defeat of his enemies. But we also sing because of the trustworthiness of his plans. Not just as a personal testimony of what he has done, not only because of the triumph over his enemies, but also because of the trustworthiness of his plans. Here, We sing to God because his salvation is most certain. The theme and emphasis in this final stanza, verses 13 through 18, has everything to do with the trustworthiness, the certainty of God's plans. Now, the grammatical tense of this section is written as if all of this is a foregone conclusion. The past events of the Exodus 
are the basis for trusting in the certainty of future events. Look back and notice how this plays out. He has stretched out his hand and swallowed them up in verse 12. Okay, Pharaoh and his host are done for. But now he goes to speak of the surrounding nations. At this moment, they have not yet heard, but they shall. And when they do, they will tremble, they will melt with fear, they will be undone. Now, if you know your narrative history, you remember that Israel is not going to meet Philistia, Edom, and Moab for some 40 years. But in this song right here, their undoing is as good as done. The tense in which this is laid out is that it is done, even though it has not yet been done, but it's as good as done. Now, remember Rahab's testimony in the book of Joshua? Joshua chapter 2, she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, Canaan, and that fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there is no spirit left in any man because of you, for Yahweh, your God, he's the God of the heavens above and on the earth beneath. They melted. They were undone. They trembled. Friends, we sing to God because the salvation he brings is most certain. Moses is teaching the Israelites here to look at their circumstances from the proper frame of reference, from God's point of view, rather than their own. To recognize what lies before them from God's point of view, rather than their perspective. This final stanza here, it's really just the poetic retelling of what's already been declared back in chapter 14, the Lord will fight for you. The battle is God's. And from his vantage point, there's no struggle. Now, if you know what happens in Deuteronomy, eventually Joshua, there's a bit of struggle. It seems like in the middle of it, like, I don't know which way this is going to go. But from the Lord's perspective, because he has decreed it, it's as good as done. To use the imagery of Psalm 2, the nations rage, they conspire, and that's troublesome to God's people in real time. But God sits in the heavens and he laughs. The end is never in doubt. Now in this section here of certainty and the trustworthiness of his salvation, notice the emphasis upon God leading and guiding his people through hostility in order to bring them, them to himself. Meaning, the certainty of this salvation, it's framed up in the mention of his faithful leading of them. Look back at verse 13. It says, He has led you in his steadfast love, the people whom he has redeemed. He has guided them by, the strength, by his strength to his holy abode. And then look down at verse 17. He will bring them that same language, and plant them on his mountain, the place 
which he has made for his abode. Steadfast love, which often is translated mercy, is this great covenant word of the Old Testament to describe God's attitude towards his people, that it is unchanging and that it is gracious. He's made a promise, and he'll always bring forth his purposes. And what we see here is that God's great purpose is to bring his people to himself, and this will not be thwarted, This will not be overturned. This will not be upheld in any way by any resistance because God is leading his people and he is guiding them in his steadfast love to himself. He's bringing them to the place which he has made. Think about that for a minute. Certainly an omnipresent God cannot be constrained to any one place. But... He can certainly manifest himself, bless a particular place at one time more than another, if he chooses, for the benefit of his people. Will he bring them into a tabernacle in the wilderness? Yeah. The place where his glory dwells. Will he bring them to a temple on his mountain, In the city of Jerusalem, he will. And he will reveal his glory there. Will he bring them to himself, gathering them as his church, and dwelling among them as a spiritual temple? He will. He does. See, God's plan is that his people should, because of the work of Christ, eventually join him where he lives. In the story of ancient Israel, it just portrays this for this. God called them out of where they had been living, Egypt, and he binds them to himself through a covenant. It's going to be there at Sinai. And then he leads them to this holy dwelling, a tabernacle, eventually a temple. Now, what we are doing this very morning, right here, this is a fulfillment of Exodus 15 of what Moses sang of right here in Exodus 15. Because God calls out those who would believe on him of where they were to be born again. And he binds them to himself in love and faithfulness through a new covenant. As we believe upon Christ as the Lord of the covenant, as master And then he leads us, his spiritual people, to the gathering of his saints, to where he dwells among us. And this assembly right here, it is but a foretaste of our eternal and our final dwelling. This is the appetizer. This is the preview. This is the foretaste of what we shall enjoy for all eternity in that eternal dwelling that holy city made without hands where God's people dwell with God. And our great confidence then in evangelism, in church planting, and in missions is that God will gather his people. The certainty that God will do what he's promised. Friends, this is the one event, this is the one adventure that we can invest in, that we can throw our money, our energy, our time, our lives towards Confident that it will succeed. 
How many times have you looked at your portfolio this past year and wondered, will it get me to retirement? This is the one event that you can be confident every ounce of investment will not be wasted because God will be faithful to gather his people to himself that he might dwell with them. This is the church's battle hymn as we labor on in faith, confident that God will overcome opposition, he'll overcome hardness of heart, he will come unbelief, and he will graciously awaken sinners to his glory and righteously judge all who would oppose. This is what we hear of when we sing and when we really charge ourselves, O church, arise. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword, which ironically makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. This is our great confidence, that God will be faithful to lead his people to himself, to the place to where he dwells, and we shall be with him. That is why we give ourselves to evangelism. That is why we give ourselves to missions. That is why we give ourselves to proclaiming the gospel. Because even the gates of hell shall not prevail against the gathering, the people of God's saints. And this is our great comfort as we await the final dwelling place. It's not only our confidence, it is our comfort. Because for the Christian, the the horizon line to which we are looked and which we are fixated upon and which we're marching towards is that the dwelling place of God is with man. This is our great comfort as we sojourn on. That just like Moses saying that he will faithfully lead us according to his chesed, his steadfast love, he will faithfully lead me to that dwelling place, so that we will hear and see, as John tells us in John 21, this loud voice from the throne that said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We sing because of the certainty of his salvation, that he most certainly will bring us to himself. What we sing matters, and why we sing matters. And Exodus 15 is a song that's worth singing. Uh, Miriam thought so. She couldn't help but singing a few more verses herself as she responded there in verse 21, singing the refrain that the whole song began with, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. This is a song worth repeating, and it shall be. Because also in John's revelation, we're told in chapter 15, we're told in this great story that the lamb will conquer, the lamb will win. And in this particular portion, John is telling us of the wrath of God against the rebellion of all who oppose the lamb. And in response to that victory, do you know what is sung? Revelation 15. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, 
And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Verse 3, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The Song of Moses gets a remix. It's continued to be sung. The same themes of God's holiness, His righteous acts, His faithfulness, His wondrous deeds. That's the Song of Heaven. That's what we rejoice in. We shall sing the Song of the Lamb for all eternity. We'll sing of the splendor of his holiness, his glorious deeds. We will sing of his justice and his truth in all of his ways. We will sing of his holiness and his righteous acts as the king of the nations. This is the song that we sing not only now, but fills the praises of heaven because it is the very essence of what God has done to glorify himself for the good of his people. So may the Lord graciously work among us to fill our hearts with the very same songs that would sing of his salvation. Would you pray that God would do that among us? Father, we ask that you would be so faithful to your word to not only show us what we ought to be singing, but to help us to sing. Father, we pray that you would give us greater joy and greater confidence in what your word declares and what you have most certainly done for us, your people. Lord, fill our hearts and fill our mouths with the sort of songs, the sort of melodies and lyrics that can't but help sing the praises of our King. Lord, give us great clarity on what you've saved us from, what you've saved us unto, and the certainty of that gracious salvation, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.